Hello, I'm Glyn Fussell and welcome to We Can Be Heroes. Can I just tell you something? I want to be really honest. I was actually nervous about talking to you today. Why, babe? It's weird because, you know, for context, we've known each other. We were talking about this earlier, right? For, well, it's so long that I actually couldn't pinpoint when I first met you, but we're talking maybe two decades. Uh, I remember us being, when I lived on Beatty Road in Stoke Newington. Yeah. And I had that bedroom that had the black wood floors <laughs> and we would go there after to, back to my place after sink the pink which was at bethnal green men's oh working club my god where all the danger begins yeah so and i was telling someone actually I, I forget why sink the pink came up and i was like oh i'm i'm one of the og attendees i remember when it was 50 of us at bethnal green hey it started yeah yeah from exactly 50 yeah. people and then taking them all back to your flat yeah <laughs> i mean i was thinking about why i was nervous and i'm just going to be really honest and let it down and i think that you your energy is this sort of quiet power whereas i'm a kind of neurotic energy this quite high energy you have this very quiet controlled power and i say that with you know as the utmost compliment to you and as long as I've known you, actually, you've had that. You've had this sort of very controlled power and beauty, and you're very smart. Um, and what's been amazing for me is now you're using all of those things in the career that you are now not only having, but where you're flourishing at. It's just like the most amazing thing to see. Oh, thank you. And, you know, likewise to you, babe, because, you know, I've always been so... You know, you look at like an elder generation and they're telling you, regaling you with stories about how they met and they're recounting stories about time spent together. And I've always wanted to be part of a community of people who have come up together, who have right. transformed and evolved and learned from each other. And so watching you go from Bethnal Green Men's Working Club to the heights that you're at now and, and really leaning into that dazzling energy that you have is, is so inspiring and to see. And I'm, I'm so grateful to be in your orbit. Oh, stop it. Actually, no, carry on. Don't you think as well? Yeah, my love language is words of affirmation. So I'm like, yeah. go on. <laughs> hey, I've got more. We've got six pages of that. It's coming to you, babe. You're going to be floating today. I think a lot of people, when we arrive, when we have that moment, you know, when we arrive at where we always wanted to arrive at, a lot of people think we just happened overnight. And I know, you know, it takes a lot of graft and a lot of understanding and and realizing and usually a lot of lives lived that didn't work out so do you look back at that boy that maybe I first met for instance in London and to where you're at now and how do you feel about him gosh yeah no I was um you know I was on shipwrecked right I think just I, before yeah I speedos met you. <laughs> yeah hey babe I knew I, I knew the speedos before I knew the man <laughs> Why, why do you think I was into you? Because <laughs> I remember Makita, the Channel 4 producers asked me to wear the red Speedos to the reunion no. show. And I remember Makita then called on me and told me to drop my trousers and show off the red Speedos, obviously, which I did. Um, so, yeah, so th I was thinking about Shipwrecked the other day and about, you know, how I was doing this thing. I, I, did, I, I was aimless, right? And Shipwrecked came along. That was 2008. And I was totally aimless. And this thing came along and I just threw myself out into the South Pacific. And I came back 
to nothing, right? Like I, I had left university early. I I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know who I wanted to be. And so in 2009, 2010, I'm living in East London. I'm hanging out with people like you. I'm, I'm working at Soho House. I'm, I, I just felt quite aimless. And so I look back on that kid now with a lot more compassion than I have done before because I can be deeply and really enduringly self-critical. And I used to kind of... I guess harbor a resentment about his aimlessness, like a younger me's aimlessness. And now as I'm coming more into myself and I'm realizing, eh, that's what your 20s are for, (laughs) to be wasted and aimless and thinking and exploring. Because I do think that all the experiences that I had, I would say in like the mid 2010s, or is that how you say refer to that time? I never know. I know. In the 2010s. We'll figure out in the 2040s. Yeah. I think those have been really formative. You know, like for example, this, you know, I was working at Soho House and in front in, uh, at front of house. So I was doing like members relations and hosting all that stuff. And I just felt so alive working on the floor and interacting with all these people and using my personality. And I didn't know that would be any good. Uh, Like for what beyond, you know, working in a restaurant, but it turns out that, you know, figuring out what people want and talking to them in ways that are engaging and makes them feel welcome and at home actually works really well for the podcast. It's such a power. I think it is. And I understanding that power is liberating, isn't it? Yeah. So I I don't know. The short version is that I look back at that that guy often um, and now with a bit more kindness and compassion than I had before. I'm going to ask you this question that I always stumble when people ask me, but what, what do you do? What, what is Josh Rivers' job? I am an enchantress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, I, I was thinking, you know, I think when you, when you forge the path that is uniquely yours and it's a gathering of all your ex- unique experiences and which, which is absolutely what you've done and then you create something that kind of pulls all those resources it's really hard to define what that is and people always want to label you right That's and right. it's and and it's very very much normally um not one label there's a million things that you do you know because there's an element within your work of activism you're definitely about change and so you're a change maker and you're a storyteller and you're a conduit for change you know all of those things and i think enchantress i've settled on really recently and because i have been so enchanted since october like there's been maybe before and i'll tell you why because uh last fall uh the images from the jwst the or the just wonderful space telescope came back from nasa and there was this conversation like this very public narrative about how small and insignificant humans are when looking at the kind of magnificence of the cosmos. Mm. And I was listening to this narrative, watching TikToks, reading tweets, thinking, I disagree. Like, I I so disagree with this. I am so enchanted and ensorcelled by these images. And it must be that we are made of the very same thing we have been so enchanted by. And so I started kind of gathering people who could help confirm my point of view, that yes, we are made of stardust, and we should feel like we're actually part of what Mary Oliver would call 
a bigger family of things. And so I was so enchanted by those images. So I found people who were also enchanted by the images. And I created these conversations for Busy Bee and Black to kind of pass on that enchantment to other people. And then I got really into all other sorts of other things that enchanted me and lit me up, whether that's queer ecology or queer theory or Black gay history. All these things light me up. They enchant me. And so because... Um, I, I become so enchanted and because I get so excited about sharing that, I'm like, well, I'm an enchantress. Like, that's what I do. Now, the mechanics of enchanting, so how I make the enchantment possible is I'm a podcaster, so I'm the creator and host of A Busy Bee in Black. I do it through my work at UK Black Pride, which until January was head of communications and now is the head of cultural partnerships. I do it through communications consulting, so I help mostly LGBTQ organizations um, help tell their stories better. And, I, and I'm kind of a always-on learner as well, so on any given day I'm reading a different book. Um, right now I'm enchanted by Andreas Weber, the biological philosopher. So yeah, so that all comes together to make me an enchantress. And even though you delivered all that information in your beautiful dulcet tones, I'm exhausted by it. So how do <laughs> but you... But I'm not, I'm energized. <laughs> I know it energized. Oh, babe, I'm tired. I'm tired. I, but, and, and, and the reason I say that is, you know, I, I sometimes feel this level of responsibility when telling other stories, right? Mm -hmm. But the flip side of that is f the fatigue, that comes with it. You know, you have a day where you get maybe like knocked off your your track and it can sometimes take a while to get back on the track. But with a sense of responsibility, there's no choice but to get back on the track, right? Yeah, but it's learning. Someone on the podcast actually said to me um, a few episodes ago that the point of being in community is that when one of you needs to step back, you know you can because other people step forward. Yeah. So I think what I've learned being part of UK Black Pride or doing Busy Being Black and, and creating, you know, Busy Being Black is a unique offering, but it's within an ecosystem of storytellers and perspectives and podcasts. So I'm not the only one doing this work. Um, the same for UK Black Pride. You know, there's a team of us, but we're not the only pride celebration or community space trying to create celebratory moments for the communities we seek to impact. So I'm, I'm learning that I can pause and that I have the people around me personally and professionally that when I do need to step back, I can do that. And, and I feel really blessed with Busy Being Black because it's mine and I will go at a pace that suits me. I, you know, I, I sometimes release episodes once every week, sometimes once every two weeks, sometimes once a month, because I, I don't have the, the capacity or the energy to maintain it all the time and to do it on my own. So until such time as Busy Being Black grows and I have a producer and an editor, then it'll be at a pace that, that I set and that I feel I can, I can maintain. So it's all about preserving your energy so you don't burn out right? Yeah, because I burned out last year. You know, uh, over the course of the pandemic, I felt quite lucky in that I had a roof over my head. I had money coming in from a full-time job. I had the community of UK Black Pride around me, and I felt quite lucky. So I felt a sense of heightened responsibility that I had to be available. And what happened was I ended up stretching myself um, way too thin for two years straight, just like kept going. And it was February of last year. Um, I, I was writing um, 
LGBT History Month statements for Kaleidoscope Trust, the Commonwealth Equality Network, and UK Black Pride. And I remember calling Phil and I was like, Lady Phil, and I was like, I don't know how many times I can say, stop killing trans people. Like I, I had lost like the zest and energy for communications, which is how I make my money, but it's also like me, I'm a communications person. And I had lost the kind of zest that I need to needed to to create the communications to do my work. And so it took me until August of last year to quit my job, to take a step back, um, and to realign my priorities and my focus so that I could um, put my energies towards what, what, what might sustain me in, in more long-term ways. And to figure out how am I going to give myself, because I feel a sense of responsibility to be useful to, to LGBTQ people in communities. So how do I manage that sense of responsibility with, um, with, with my output? Like, how do I make sure that I, that I have the resources I need? And how do you? Uh, any day now. <laughs> no, so like I said, so with Busy Being Black, I'm, 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 I'm maintaining a pace that I can, um, that I can, that, that I can meet. Um, with UK Black Pride, I'm working closely with Lady Phil about being better at saying no to things. Because, you know, you know, Lady Phil, it's so hard to say no when she right. has to do something. Yes, yes, yes. And that is why she's Lady Phil. Though. And that's why she's Lady Phil. Yeah, exactly. Um, but she's been so supportive of me not saying yes all the time. And so at UK Black Pride, I've kind of taken on a different role so that I can focus on um, more singular projects throughout the course of the year to maintain um, that level of involvement. And I'm being more particular about the types of work, freelance and consulting work that I take on and for the lengths of, en of engagement for those pieces of work. So I'm, you know, I'm also working with ADHD. So how do I make sure that I <laughs> am not overwhelming and overloading myself and then feeling guilty about not being able to to meet all the demands I, I set for myself? It's, it's all just become clear. I never realized the ADHD mm -hmm. was right in front of me. You probably <laughs> you you probably realize this, but you're staring right at it, and it's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, it's a lot to. Well, it's one thing to understand an ADHD diagnosis, and then there's another thing to not um lose your mind and use it for good. Because I think sometimes I don't know about you, but I can use being ADHD f as as an unstoppable force. And then other times, oh my God, I can't lay down, but I can't get up. Yeah, I am learning. I, I basically think, though, that ADHD is not, I think it's an indication. I was having a conversation on the podcast, actually, with um, with a queer autistic person. And I said, you know, does your autism point to some sort of societal imbalance? Not that autism means that that you are imbalanced, but does what we learn through neurodivergence like point to some kind of elemental systemic dissonance that you know these quote unquote diagnoses seek to rectify so for example if you have ADHD they put you on medication so that you can work 8 hours a day and be productive yes. but perhaps ADHD is us saying no like that's just not how we're supposed to operate so i think for those of us who are certainly more creative thinkers and creative practitioners um 
uh, it's about finding the kind of rhythm of our lives. So when I have a, a, a spark of inspiration, which usually comes in the morning, then I have found that without medication, if I follow that spark of inspiration, I can work for hours on end, you know, without assistance. If I resist that spark of inspiration, I won't do anything for the entire day. <laughs> so oh. it's about figuring out like, you know, how, what does my personal rhythm mean for the type of work that I want to do? It's so interesting hearing you say that because that is exact. I mean, you, you literally just spoken my truth, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it, 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 it's, it, it is exactly that. It's about riding the rhythm and understanding it, but then, I'm not as good at the rhythm carries on and I'm still trying to, ah, I need to keep it going. I think you need to know when the time is to just go, right, I need to sit down and take some time for me now. Yeah. And I can be like really, I had a like a, uh, a breakdown in uh, the spring of 2016. I had been working like this. I was, at, I was involved in a startup and for two years I'd been working 80 hour weeks and not really taking care of myself. And there was a great deal of kind of emotional stress and bullying within the organization. And I broke down, I had like a physical breakdown. And I remember I, I went home, fell on the couch and I slept for like two days. And when I woke up, I was like, right, something has to change. And so now I have this barometer um, this kind of internal gauge that literally will not let me get to that stage again. So I really do prioritize, um, I'm trying to remember to prioritize enough rest and I'm getting much better. Sometimes I feel a little guilty because <laughs> I feel like I should be doing something. But That's I don't the ADHD. Wanna... <laughs> well, I just, and I also just don't want to, I don't want to wait to enjoy life. I don't want to wait to rest. I don't want to look forward to a holiday and that be the one or two times a year that I get to enjoy myself and my company. So I, I do resist work a lot as well. I do resist taking medication. I do resist being productive. So that striking a, that striking the balance between being a productive and responsible uh, public-facing person who wants to support the LGBTQ community and also someone who's like deeply concerned about his own welfare um, is, right. is an ongoing dance. Okay, from the outside, as someone that's known you for a long time, I perceive you to be someone that's really got a grip of your own personal joy. Um, and, and the reason is <laughs> that maybe for purely selfish reasons, I often will go to your Instagram account to, to watch your tomfoolery Mm -hmm. And your the way that you are on social media for me is nothing short of amazing queer joy. It's so good, it's so good. And do you understand? Um, do you understand the impact of that when you think I'm doing nothing? I'm literally just in my kitchen doing a dance or doing a lip sync or something like that because it's really it's amazing. You know what? You're uh, I don't know what's changed recently, but. Um, people have been a lot more forthcoming about that. I was at the British, uh, the Burberry uh, Diversity Awards or something, um, like a, a couple months ago, and like five different people came up to me it's and said, amazing, "Oh, I've Josh. been watching your reels," and it's it's really affirming. Like I said, my love language is words of affirmation. But no, the intention is to make other people laugh and have fun and be entertained. Um, I can entertain myself on my own all day, you know, to no yeah. end. That's probably a trauma response, but <laughs> I find myself really entertaining. Um, 
And so, you know, I, I just want other people to also feel joy. I do sometimes feel conflicted. And I, I was, um, I've got an episode coming out on the podcast about shame um, and the kind of different uh, defensive behaviors we take on to protect ourselves from shame. And this has got me thinking over the past couple of days since we recorded the conversation um, about how I like kind of police or censor myself on social media or how I'm utilizing social media to kind of maintain some sort of or some sort of wall between who I am and, and who I am in the public space. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what the point of you telling, telling you that was, but. <laughs> well, no, there is a, there is a real point here is that. I choose joy often. Being, being kind of radical in your queer joy and absolutely being authentic to yourself is for me as much activism as it is about, um, standing up and doing a talk to someone you know yeah, but it's- i mean sometimes i want to be a whore online <laughs> i have to say it i do so i want to so- be one of the slutty gays online you know and the thing is when i do that josh um, you do wear lycra and no pants i just need to <laughs> i just need to remind you of that <laughs> i think i could be sluttier no <laughs> okay. i was when i was in lisbon last year i was i went to the nude beach and i took a video of myself like applying sunscreen to my bum and i put it on um, Instagram. An hour later, I got a message from a friend saying, oh my, don't, you know, someone said, oh, doesn't he work in human rights? Like, what's he doing with his ass on Instagram? And I was like, ah, but you see, like, there's that immediate kind of policing of who I'm supposed to be in the public space because I'm connected to LGBTQ human rights. I can't also be someone who sexualizes himself um, or feels like his body is something that he'd like to share with the world. Or have Um, a sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> it can be one yeah. thing, one note. Yeah. And it's just not me. I, I think what I'm learning is to, and this doesn't have to be a public effort, but certainly within myself and in private, figuring out the kind of multiplicities of me. Like, how does Josh show up for himself in all of his curiosities and passions and enchantment and humor and sadness? Um and then how am I expressing that when I choose to with the outside world? Well, I think you're doing it. I see it. I receive it. And I appreciate it. I see you. I see you. Um, <laughs> the other thing I see and I love is the podcast. And I've really Thank been you. binging the last couple of days. And A, it's got the best jingle of any podcast that ever was, ever. (laughs) So good. I mean, it's not a competition, but I'm totally winning. (laughs) Yeah, you are, you are. But there's one thing that you ask your guests right at the beginning of the podcast that I don't know why, but every single time I listen, it, it literally does punch me in the heart because it's such a pure, beautiful, honest, soul bearing question. And that is, how is your heart? And it's such. And I don't know why, but it really stands so um, strong to me as a question because we don't ask that to people Mm -hmm. enough, you know. We we don't get down on that human level so instantly when we connect with people. So is that a question that comes from a, a mentor or from family or is that something that you just came up with yourself, you genius? No, I didn't come up with it on my own. Um, I was having a a dalliance with a lover 
And um, <laughs> I spent the night at his house. Okay, Barbara Cartland. <laughs> Dalliance with a lover. With a lover. We were riding bareback on a stallion. <laughs> well, after that, we woke up um, in the morning, and I guess he had woken up before me because he was like, you know, it was like a movie. He was looking at me while I slept. Um, and um, as soon as I woke up, he said, Hello, beautiful. How's your heart? And I was like, oh, my God, I don't know how to answer that question. But I just melted. I was like, what a beautiful way to wake up in the morning. So I started road testing that question um, among friends. Like, I started with Lady Phil, how's your heart? And she was like, ooh. And everyone kind of responded to that prompt um, in the same way. So then I just started incorporating it into the show. And while it was kind of an unintentional, let me say it another way. What I set out to do was, it's you know, opening a show, a podcast, a conversation, the first question is always the hardest, particularly when you're speaking to people who are so accomplished and who are doing such great, incredible work in the world. Like, where the fuck do you start? Like, where? <laughs> what's the first question? And so How's Your Heart was kind of a, a kind of selfish way to, like, get over that first question hurdle. But then what I realized is that it also reaffirms my commitment and my intention in that space. You know, I intend for Busy Beyond Black to be a soft place for people to land. And that includes my guests and listeners. And so when I'm asking you how your heart is, I'm letting you know that I actually care how you are at your deepest level. And it opens up a space for safety, for vulnerability, for like a deeper communication. And I just think that the responses to that question Um, are always so varied and you know for example when that question is asked if we're if we happen to be recording um and there have been images of the murder of a black person circulating on social media the kind of weight of that feeling and of that question lands differently than on other days when we don't have that kind of um, specter Mm. of black trauma um kind of lurking around um each of us and i just love that um that I've learned so much about how my guests and queer black people more broadly navigate the world when they answer that question. One question. It's the ultimate disarming connector, I think. Um, I mean, I do kind of also like stumping people as well. (laughs) I mean, can I tell you my reaction when the first time I heard you say it was I chucked my phone on the ground. I was like, how dare he ask me that question? So personal, cut so deep. And then when you, yeah, rude. But when you take, when you think about it, you know, we don't ask ourselves that question. Well, that question, how are you, is just culturally dull right like we've we've denuded it we've we've de- defanged it like we, we don't we're not really asking it's just kind of a nice to say kind of thing because when someone responds with actually i'm my heart's really heavy or i'm i'm going through something right now you're like fuck shit i wasn't actually prepared for this kind of response yeah, like i, I actually just need to get my coffee and go <laughs> um and and i don't suggest that we change that necessarily right because i don't think that i really want to know <laughs> how everyone I encounter's heart is. Um, But when we intend to be more intentional about our conversations um, with certain people, that that we can provoke a different response um, when necessary. Are there any guests that you've had on that have changed who you are fundamentally as a human being? Yeah, without a doubt. Off the top of my head, PJ Samuels who um, is a poet and um, 
works in LGBTQ, uh, works with LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers. We had this kind of really beautiful uh, and like remarkable conversation. And I could literally feel at a cellular level <laughs> me being transformed in the moment. One of the most enduring aspects from that conversation was how PJ understands and moves towards freedom. So um, in the conversation, I kind of am lobbing words at PJ. So uh, roots, family, love, freedom. PJ says that there's th the world that we live in, there's always going to be something inhibiting or prohibiting our freedom. It's just an impossible, ever-changing goalpost. We're never really going to be free. Too much is wrong. But if we're pursuing joy versus pursuing freedom, we are going to move whatever the barrier is out of our way to remain joyful. So PJ says that the pursuit of joy automatically creates the pursuit of freedom. And what that focus on joy enables is, uh, according to PJ, is a focus on the minute the minutia, the everyday, the quotidian, what's happening in the moment right now? How can I be more joyful right now? How can I find the joy in what I'm doing in this conversation in the world around me? So I walked away from that conversation like stumped. Another one is Jean Lloyd, uh, who describes herself as a communications provocateur. And we were having this kind of far-reaching conversation about communication, um, mostly interpersonal communication. And um, I had this aha moment over the course of the conversation. We were talking about political differences, if you will, and you know how difficult it is for many of us to be in conversation with people who do not see our lives as valuable. And what Jean said, or, or who think our lives are debatable. And what Jean said is, you know, is the person across from you even committed to having the same conversation you're having? And I was like, oh my, I get goosebumps thinking about it. Like how often have we entered into a conversation with one intention? I'm going to change your mind. I'm going to bring you over to my side. But that's not the conversation the other person mm -hmm. has in their mind they're having with you. And that, that even happens... In, not across, not only across political divides, but in our in our personal lives, yeah. right? When something goes wrong or we need to address something, we haven't even come together to say, "Here's what we're going to talk about." Do we agree on this way forward? And so that was um, amazing. And one of the statements that she says in that conversation is, "Here's what I said. Now, what did you make that mean?" Oh, <laughs> <laughs> here's what I said. Now, what did you make that mean? Yeah. I love that. That's another one. And a third one I would say uh, really transformed me was one from last year. I had a conversation with Marquise um, Bay, who is uh, a scholar and academic working in, in Black trans theory. And I was reading their book ahead of our conversation. And one of the things that Marquise argues is that these identity formations, queer, gay, black, gay, all of these, um, we can't take them with us into the future. The future that we want is, is not a future that we can possibly imagine. And so any of the identity markers, any of the community formations that we feel safe within now, we have to be ready to unmoor ourselves from these connections, from these labels, because th that's the only way we're going to get to the future that we need. And so I found that conversation to be very challenging for me, because as I said to Marquise, 
I've spent so long coming into myself as a black gay man. Like I feel so empowered and emboldened and proud to be a black gay man. And I know intellectually that the identity markers of black and gay are political. They carry history with them. Yeah. Like they don't mean the same thing for everyone. And and so I'm going to have to shed that at some point, but kind of being in conversation with, with them and, and being challenged in that way was a transformative moment as well. Like, and it made me think about how I'm going to embody and live a politics I've intellectualized um, up until now. I mean, the, the level of guests that you have on the podcast, I mean, these are some serious academics, thinkers, you know. Change makers. Change makers, just yeah. unbelievable minds. How do you navigate feeling comfortable in those uncomfortable situations? I haven't. <laughs> uh, five years on, Busy Me and Black launched in 2018. Five years on, I still get in my head before every conversation. Am I the right person to do this? Is that a stupid question? I mean, like I said before, I'm deeply self-critical and I can be very hard on myself. And so I will kind of rework a question until I want to punch myself in the face because I'm so scared of asking someone smart a bad question. Um, and then I'll, I'll get, I'll become very anxious about it. And then I'll get into the conversation and all my notes will go out the window. All my research is just kind of percolating in my head and it'll just flow. And so I don't know uh, how I stop getting in my head about it, but I know that me getting in my head forces me to do a great deal of research before every conversation. And how, how do you, I mean, there's a real, you know, the real reoccurring theme when I talk to people, especially queer people, especially queer black people of imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, I think that that is, there's for obvious reasons, you know, I, like I said to you right at the beginning of this podcast, I, and I know you, I've known you for 20 years. On my way here today, I was thinking, oh my God, oh my God, I can't, and Josh is so smart. Like, and it's such a, a, a weird, strange thing that, I know as, as a queer person, I, I, I battle with it constantly and I'm always trying to get out of it. And I can be winning, you know, on paper, really winning. And I might be having the biggest wobble of anxiety or self-consciousness. But I want to offer another way of looking at that because we were speaking earlier about the sense of responsibility that we share, right? Mm -hmm. And I think with that sense of resp responsibility comes a sense of care. So I want to do, I'm nervous because I want to do right by you. Yeah. I want you to come into my space and I want you to feel safe. I want you to feel like I've done my research and I want you to feel respected. And so that nervousness, I think, is not only imposter syndrome. I think it's also a sense of duty. Um, and that, I think that sense of duty can be a good thing, right? It, it makes us kind of um, show up more present. It, it kind of, I think duty and responsibility can bring us into our body and out of our head. How am I going to show up in this moment with this person right in front of me? But I think like many people, I, I too, I'm in spaces and places where I'm like, I don't belong here. And, I, and so I don't think it's, it's imposter syndrome. I think I suffer from I don't I, an acute awareness that there are certain spaces in which I do not belong, and I also don't want to belong in them. Sure. So that imposter <laughs> syndrome is like, what are you even doing here? Yeah, <laughs> you're not even into this. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I spent an entire lifetime putting myself in all the situations. And I think that's quite a scrappy working class thing of like, you are going to see me. You are, you know. And, and you'll take and, every opportunity as it arises. Yeah. Exactly. But as I've gotten older, I, it's, it's going back to actually what you're talking about with energy is it's wasted energy. I can offload all this energy wanting validation and wanting you to see me. But what's the fucking point? What's going to be achieved after? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> so I want to talk about activism, which the minute anyone hears the word activism, I think a lot of people that don't really understand activism is more than one thing. Mm. Um, people just go, oh, you know, or roll their eyes. And I always think of myself as an accidental activist in that through being maybe a figurehead in a community or telling stories, you know, I get put in the activism orbit, I guess, and I'm absolutely fine with it. But um, how does it sit with you? I mean, I don't refer to myself as an activist. Um, I don't know. It's just, I, I think I hold quite a high standard for activists in my head. Um, and th th that doesn't mean that the standard I'm holding is the one everyone should hold. It's just in my head, when I envision an activist, I think of someone doing kind of like on the ground interventions in community. Like I, I, I see a very specific expression of activism. And I think that's informed by the work I've done with change makers and activists across the Commonwealth. Like I'm very aware that I'm here as um, someone who has a certain skill set who can help these activists achieve something, but I'm not an activist by proxy, right? I'm just someone who perhaps advocates for ad activists. And so I consider my myself more of an, an advocate for LGBTQ people. And I think that links really nicely to, to my role as a, as a storyteller or, or an amplifier of queer stories and perspectives. That's a perfect way of putting it. Um, there's a lot of subjects that, you know, when listening to your podcast or just knowing you as, as a human being, that you're, there's so much that you are not afraid to talk about. Um, so what do you think it is about facts that become so offensive to people? Um, that is a great question that I was not expecting to go. Have that. Um, Facts. Do you mean like the truth? Well, the I guess truth. there's a difference between facts well, and truth, but I think that so often I will I I can only speak from my kind of queerness. I will speak to people out out of my world, out of my orbit, and I will give them some hard facts on queer history. And they have conveniently been rewritten. And you know, the black community knows that only too well yeah, that's right. and and so when a fact is delivered this is what happened this is why you know i feel a certain way this is the question i'm asking you people feel this they feel that they're allowed to argue it or I that see. they're allowed to have an opinion on it even. I see. yeah i think that um culturally in the uk we've accepted a kind of dissonance between the truth of the matter and the fiction of a nation and so I think that it's, um, and, and part of what maintains that fiction is this kind of pseudo debate that happens in civic life. And whether that's um, LGBTQ asylum seekers, uh, migrants crossing the channel, trans people, everything is up for debate because these conversations always ultimately distract from what are the kind of the more structural issues going on. I mean, let's take the royal family, for example, Oof. you know, 
I said on Instagram last year that the, the cognitive dissonance, the mental gymnastics that royalists have to engage in to ignore the cold, hard data in front of them should be a covetable mental agility. <laughs> like it, but it's not. It's delusional, right? It's delusional. Right. But that's the dance that you have to engage in to believe in something in this country, um, to believe in the kind of the national fiction. Um, and so I think I'm quite lucky on Busy Being Black and that I'm engaging with people who want to have generative conversations. Um, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of Liz Fichetti, um, the uh, director of the Institute of Race Relations, who has been working in anti-racism and pro-immigration efforts uh, since the late 70s with Asa Vanandan. And she wrote this incredible book called Europe's Fault Lines. And uh, this book kind of documents the steady and sometimes very often alarming rise of the right and the extreme right across Europe and the European Union's inability to manage, mediate, and quell this kind of increasing rise in kind of Nazism and, and far-right extremism. Until that conversation, until reading her book, I had thought that Europe was this kind of idyllic, perfect idea, execution of democratic ideals. I, I was living in a bubble, and her book and our conversation popped that bubble. You know, And one of the things that emerges um, from that conversation, and indeed with conversations after it, was how Europe's borders are policed, who is considered a worthy European citizen, who human rights actually apply to. They certainly don't apply to migrants and refugees in Europe. Mm -hmm. And so I had to recalibrate my understanding of Europe and question, does uh, an allegiance to Europe make sense for someone like me whose politics are decidedly black and queer? Probably not. And so that makes me look at Europe in different ways. It doesn't also mean that I won't be enjoying the spoils of Europe as and when I can. It does mean that I'm not going to be walking through the world with blinders on about the violence of a superstructure like the European Union. But I am eager to learn and be transformed um, by information, by perspectives, by stories, because I'm not worried that me learning new information about the world is going to harm me in any way, right? I've, I've got nothing to lose by understanding how the world works more intimately. Um, I think, if anything, it helps us encounter the world in ways that are, um, that make us better prepared for the change we need to make. Oh, that's a sexy brain. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you still really want on the podcast? I mean, I'm sure there's loads, but let's just have some top three dream guests that you would love to have on. And Professor Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, and for those who don't know, Professor Crenshaw coined intersectionality. Um, and, and namely, I want to talk to Professor... I mean, I have spoken with Professor Crenshaw before, actually, at dinner with her, <laughs> Clang. <laughs> um, but I, but I, I, so much has changed since we had dinner in 2018, um, not only in each of our lives, but in the kind of public conversation about intersectionality, to whom it applies, how it's, um, how it's utilized, and how it might need to alter and shift to adapt to different political realities. Um, so I'd, I'd love to speak to um, Professor Crenshaw. I would really love to speak to Oprah. 
And it's like a, <laughs> she's one of my black blueprints. Um, and I don't know, I don't necessarily agree with a lot of what Oprah represents now, but she has been very formative in my understanding about how I'd like to intellectually engage with the world and to be unafraid to be vulnerable in public and to use one's own subjective life experience to help make things make more sense. And the third person is Krista Tippett, who is the host of On Being, which um, is my favorite podcast besides Busy Being Black. And We Can Be Heroes, of course. Um, it like was playing. Krista Tippett um, and On Being that actually inspired Busy Being Black's format. Um, I was so moved by the depth of the conversations, the diversity of the guests. You know, one day she's speaking to a poet, the next it's an environmental activist, the next mm. it's the Pope. Like, th there's just this incredible breadth of, of guests and topics. And there's a softness and intellectual rigor to On Being. And so when I was listening to On Being, I thought, I want to do this for queer Black people. I want this to be a space that centers ideas um, ways of living and being in the world that, that center our lived experience. And so, yeah, Krista Tippett, Professor Crenshaw, and Oprah. Oprah being a role model to so many people, I've always struggled with, I've, well, I did struggle back in the 1840s with a lack of, <laughs> a lack of role models that, mm. that, that I could really see as my future. Was that the case for you? And do you think that that's changing. Do you think that with more stories, like the stories that you're telling on Busy Being Black or people like you out there, do you think that we're, we're making paths for new, a new generation of role models and children that feel empowered? Yeah, I do think we need to resist the role model idea. Really? I, I, yeah, I, I think it speaks to this kind of... I'm I'm unique in that I am the only Josh Rivers. I'm the only me in the world. But I'm not the only person capable of doing Busy Being Black, working at UK Black Pride. Like, I'm just not unique in the grand scheme of things. I have access um, and safety and support and community that enable me to do things that I love and to follow my passions and curiosities. Um, I feel a sense of responsibility and duty and I act those out in certain ways, but, I, but I'm not unique in that. There are plenty of people who can and do do this without the attention that I receive. So I think that what I'm learning through Busy Being Black and indeed UK Black Pride and indeed working for the Commonwealth Equality Network is that there isn't just kind of one role model. Like there, I'm inspired by people across the world who are showing up as themselves fully. And so I think that we, and I think that we do that naturally, but we're kind of corralled into choosing one. Uh, you know, we're, we're corralled into saying, you know, um, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson are role models. Okay, fine. Uh, who else? Like who in your life is informing your politics? Who in your life is changing how you view and engage with the world? And what does that constellation of people around you look like? How do they impact how you show up in the world? So I think if we can move away from role models and more like towards a constellation, an ecosystem, I think it's a much more generative way to think about how we are all shaped and show up in the world. And on that note, my beautiful friend, I want to thank you massively. You are honestly joy and you're brilliant <laughs> and you're beautiful. And I thank you for that, as I'm sure many others do. 
I love you deep, Glenn, and I'm so grateful for your friendship and to see you shining. You light me up. <laughs>